I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome. Hello. To the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In every episode, we kick off the episode with the weekend review. What movies and TV shows we've been watching since the last episode. Move on to the main event, which is a main topic of discussion or a main review. And then finish up with film faves, our respective lists of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. In this episode, the main event will be our review of Ghostbusters Afterlife. And then film faves will be a discussion or a countdown of our favorite comfort food movies. We'll talk a little bit more about what that term means for us and the makeup of our lists later. But first, we have a couple things to talk about from the week in review. Shanna, you have been binging like crazy when it comes <laughs> to shows in between episodes. What have you been watching this time? I finally got a chance to check out something on the Apple TV. The subscription is like $15 a month and we haven't checked out anything. Well, so an occasional movie, but you're right. Yeah, not but on a I, regular basis. I figured, you know what? It's as expensive as HBO. It has less to offer. I better go and see if the if the shows are worth it, you yeah. know, because otherwise we need to kind of put a pause on that one. So I checked out The Morning Show, which stars Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, Billy Crudup, Mark Duplass, Nesta Car Carbonell, Karen Pittman, just to name a few. This is basically a behind the scenes of a news morning show. Like production good, like good morning america or yes. the today show yes and what happens is the first episode the first few minutes there's some they all think someone's died but really what's happened is a scandal has come to light and the co-host anchor uh is being accused of a number of things uh sexual assault uh, as well as other stuff played by who and that, oh, that's Steve Carell. He's not even go. in the first few people mentioned. That's funny. Anyway, so what's interesting about this is it's not just about, oh, well, yeah, someone has spoken up and now the news, the other news media uh, like Times and New York Post know about this. But we're also seeing, okay, how does that affect the co-host, Jennifer Aniston? And they need to bring someone new in. So they grab Reese Witherspoon, who is as they describe a firecracker and speaks her truth and then we get to see all the people who are in charge behind the scenes so the producer hmm. the is it a ceo of like of like the company yeah mm, okay. yeah so th that's pretty interesting and it all comes to a head and i think there's 10 episodes and this was worth binging i i thought it was great i know that you had heard some like mixed feelings about this show i'm not pleased with one thing that happened in the final episode but we'll see what how they work it in season two which i've already started i'm on episode two at this point okay so you have finished season one you started season two yeah and you're um mostly you're like 90 percent pleased with season one yeah, I, I would say so. The the 10% is really, you know, people will know what I'm talking about when I say the last episode. Uh, something 
goes a particular way for a particular character and I wasn't into that. The performances are great. The scene, all the things happening behind the cameras is a lot of fun. It's like watching, is it broadcast news? Well, the the one about news in the yeah. 1980s. So now you're seeing a little bit of that. It's very glossy and it's it's not completely... Uh, Reese Witherspoon kind of brings in that Holly Hunter, you know, we can't just be showing trash and mm. fluffy stuff. The we integrity. need to get, yeah, we need to be truthful and we need to actually cover things mm. that Journalism. are uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. So you reference what I had heard. I, I had heard mixed things. And on Rotten Tomatoes, each season has a consensus around the 60 percentile. Okay. So the the second season got slightly better reviewed than the first season, but oh. the consensus was for the first season that it feels at times more like a vanity project than a hard-hitting drama that it aspires to be. Mm. But there is pleasure to be had in watching the two leads. Yes, I think the best part of this is watching Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon next to each other. I think the contra, just as actresses, you know, seeing those two people together and then as the characters they play is very interesting because Reese Witherspoon speaks out, speaks the truth. Jennifer Aniston is trying to keep to herself and keep her job. So she's a little stressed out and a little high strung. And it's very interesting and Reese Witherspoon is like, well, I've got nothing to lose kind of attitude. And Jennifer Aniston is, I've got everything to lose. I must keep a, keep up a facade. So mm. it's interesting how that rocks the boat. Yeah. So when this came out, I wasn't necessarily sold on it. Being, this is like Apple TV Plus's flagship show, basically, one of them. And I was like, eh, it's not really, I don't know. It wasn't pushing me over there. It's making me feel like we really need an Apple TV. And the only reason we got it was because you got tired of the fire having issues, especially with when it came to HBO Max. Well, and I think when we bought the Apple TV device, we had a discount Mm. to Apple TV Plus. Right, right. But there's issues with the fire in terms of... Uh, HBO Max's launch, uh, where basically like Apple and Roku were the only things I think that uh, I think it was Roku. It was one of the other ones that was the only things that uh, HBO Max had launched on. They hadn't made a deal with Amazon. So you're like, enough of this. And so you went and got that. It sounds like you ended up being a big fan of the show. It's one that I had backburnered. And, you know, maybe I'll check it out based on your recommendation. (laughs) Yeah, sure. If I can catch up with you. Well, I don't know if you can. <laughs> yeah, you kind of burned right through yeah, it there. Yeah, sorry about that. I've been working from home. And it's it's. I've been working hard, so I needed something in the background. All right, so that's the morning show on Apple TV+. Plus, and that is it for your Week in Review, yeah? Yes, I believe so. All right, so now it's time for our Week in Review, because I haven't had any opportunity really to watch anything or much myself. So we'll start with two things. Uh, well, we'll we'll talk about two things we've caught up on from this year. Starting with Spencer, I was very excited about this movie that did, that opened on my birthday weekend. It is according to IMDb. I'm only going to read part of the premise here because I yeah I'm not so sure I want to read the whole thing. Pepper, during her Christmas holidays with the royal family at the Sandringham Estate in Norfolk, England, Diana Spencer, 
struggles with mental health problems. I'll leave it at that. It's by Pablo Lorraine, who a lot of people know Pablo Lorraine as the director of Jackie, which starred Natalie Portman a few years ago. This film stars Kristen Stewart as Diana, Princess of Wales. It also principally stars Timothy Spall and Sean Harris. You'll also see Jack Farthing play Charles. So, Shanna, there is a there was a lot of anticipation about this movie with Kristen Stewart stepping into the role of uh, portraying Diana, who has been lionized and you know highly revered as part of her legacy. What did you think of Spencer? Do you feel like Kristen Stewart stepped up to the plate? and was worthy of the role. Yeah, I was super surprised. As soon as we saw her face revealed, you definitely saw Princess Diana there. Uh, It was almost a little creepy. (laughs) Mm. Princess Diana was very loved in South Africa, uh, you know, not only as how she was generally as a person, but she also did a lot of work with AIDS, which was a huge epidemic in South Africa and across the African continent. You know, we knew a lot about Princess Diana. I think everybody did because of how the paparazzi kind of became this huge thing during her time. They just couldn't get enough of her. I thought that Kristen Stewart did a phenomenal job. She had very subtle acting facial expressions, kind of embodied the character. You could kind of feel the energy that Diana might have through Kristen Stewart during this situation. Look, I'm not going to presume to know how easy or difficult a role is, but I would imagine that this is kind of a difficult one to play because Princess Diana is such an icon. We're seeing her at a very difficult time of her life with mental issues, anxiety, depression, I think a little bit of self-loathing, bodily harm. So it's not easy if we don't really know the behind the scenes. And I was rather impressed. Excellent. Yeah, I think this is a very good movie. I don't think it it's one that necessarily blew me away per se, but it is a very good movie, very fine film. I think that Kristen Stewart is really stretching herself as an actress here, and I don't mean to say that it's it's something that's beyond her reach at all because I think more often than not, she really becomes someone other than herself. She, You don't see Kristen uh, more often than not. You see Diana. And, you know, you could tell that she she knew the, the significance of portraying Diana and really took it seriously and studied. I would be very interested in listening to interviews of her talk about mm. her prep for the role. I, I would be very interested in seeing the behind the scenes as well. Yeah. Anything they have to share, the creators. Yeah, Sean Harris is also of note. He is like the master chef of the grounds that they are at. I loved seeing him in that role. It was perfect. Yes. I do think this is mostly a performance piece more than one that is 
to be celebrated for its script or its story. It is one that, you know, it's it's front and center, all about Kristen Stewart, as, as Diana, I should say. It's all about Diana and what she is going through. In some ways, it's a very subjective film, as it is following her perspective of things and and really giving you a sense of what she was going through. Um, so I give the film a 7 out of 10. How about you? I love the humanization of her. I think we all knew that she was pretty authentic, but I loved how they showed this is a woman who was in a really controlled situation, situation that became intolerable. I give it a 7. Oh, you do? Interesting. Okay. So that is Spencer, which is in theaters now. Next, we caught up with a release from June, which is Pig. Pig is a sort of a drama slash minor thriller. It's about a truffle hunter who lives alone in the Oregonian wilderness who must return to his past in Portland in search of his beloved foraging pig after said pig is kidnapped. This stars primarily Nicolas Cage and Alex Wolf with appearances by such people as Adam Arkin. Um, David Nell is actually also um, someone who shows up. This is directed by Michael Sarnaski, who is a filmmaker I am not familiar with, but boy... Did this movie make a splash in critic circles earlier this year? Sarnowski has apparently also directed like episodes of TV shows, I guess. Olympia and Friday Night Legacy. I'm not familiar with those. So this is essentially his feature debut. And it's an interesting one because... Essentially, you have this very low-key, disgruntled Nick Cage going into town. He's completely off the grid and everything, but he's going into town and, and hunting down his pig and trying to find those responsible for kidnapping his pig. This film absolutely upset expectations for me. I thought this was going to be the John Wick of Truffle Hunters where Nick Cage was going to kick ass and break bones until he found his pig. And it ended up being that his special set of skills was really more in the culinary arts and as a wordsmith. What did you think, Shanna, of Pig? I thought this was the horror adult version of Ratatouille. Interesting. Yeah. Explain. There's a lot of things that are happening in this film. He has this guy trying to mind his own business. Mm. He's living his life with his pig. He's, the, you know, away from busy cities, towns, etc. And I find, you know, usually when we see a movie about that, it's usually because the character is dealing with loss or mm-hmm. trying to get mm-hmm. grounded again. Mm-hmm. And that was interesting until... <laughs> Until he started going back into the city, then I, you know, because the pig is stolen and he's trying to get it back. And then things got a little weird. He was going underground to get to some sort of secret place. And, it, you know, Mm. there were lots of other things happening like that. So I thought it was going to be a lot more interesting 
but it kind of mm. felt like it was just a tickle and it didn't really land for me personally. I liked Nick Cage's performance. I liked seeing him like that. And I also thought it was going to be a nice little John Wick thing. I don't know. But then, you know, he comes across other chefs and he talks to them in a really particular way and engages with them and tries to bring out their true self, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, we're skirting around details here. We don't want to spoil too much. But yes, you're saying? I didn't like the ending, so I can't really... I don't really have anything else to say. Okay. <laughs> what do you rate the movie? Uh, probably a six. Oh, okay. So you actually thought the good outweighed the bad on it then. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. You... <laughs> All right. Uh, it doesn't... Your face is... <laughs> So unconvincing. Well, I'm. Look, it's a good movie. Okay. It's not for me. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. So, yes, I definitely expected him in several occasions to just suddenly do something quite visceral and violent. And I was kind of bracing myself for that. And this is not that kind of movie. And I think that that's fascinating in itself. I think there are there's a monologue or two that speaks to the themes of the movie. And when you consider that, those monologues with how the film ends and where the film leaves the main character, it leaves you with something to think about and chew on. And I think that is interesting and notable. I think that... Nick Cage has been a workhorse. Just I, I don't know what debts he has, but he has been churning <laughs> out so much stuff. He'll just he'll just start play any role basically, and most of them is direct to streaming or video. And so when he shows up in something like this, and he is like low key Cage, and even sometimes when he's like wild and crazy cage it really depends on the material um it's really nice and refreshing it seems like ah you know we haven't lost you entirely so i don't know i appreciate the film i don't think it's a great film i don't think it's one of the best films of the year but i do think it is worth checking out i give this film also a seven out of ten so i liked it apparently marginally more than shanna but it, but if you listen to us, it sounds like I liked it a lot more than Shanna. I, I think that's right, yeah. Because I do think that there's a lot to appreciate about the film and how different it is and the different directions it goes from what you might expect from a film like this. So that is Pig, which I understand is on VOD and, and several other places right now. And that about does it for the Weekend Review. And now it's time to move on to the main event, which is our review of Ghostbusters Afterlife. What are you doing here in Somerville anyway? Honestly, my mom won't say it, but we're completely broke. And the only thing that's left in our name is this creepy old farmhouse our grandfather left us in the middle of nowhere. Why'd you bring me up here? Entertainment value. <laughs> What is that? I don't know. Somehow, a town that isn't anywhere near a tectonic plate, that has no fault lines, no fracking, no loud music even, 
is shaking on a daily basis. Under the dining table now! Hey, remember that one summer we died under a table? I found this in my living room. Whoa, killer replica. A replica of what? A ghost trap? There hasn't been a ghost sighting in 30 years. New York in the 80s? It's like The Walking Dead. Your dad never mentioned this to you? It's just my mom. My grandfather died. My mom says we're just here to pick through the rubble of his life. from the trailer to Ghostbusters Afterlife. Ghostbusters Afterlife, according to IMDb, is about a single mom and her two kids arriving in a small town. They begin to discover their connection to the original Ghostbusters and the secret legacy their grandfather left behind. This stars, or this is directed by Jason Reitman, son of Ivan Reitman, and... One who had a bit part in Ghostbusters 2 in one scene. Uh, there is a scene that takes Ray and Winston to task during a birthday party. And <laughs> he is the child that did so. He's also gone on to, to make some great films like Up in the Air and Juno. This film stars Carrie Coon, Paul Rudd, Finn Wolfhard, and McKenna Grace... With several appearances I won't mention. When we review a movie, what we like to do is focus on the good, what worked for us about a movie, what were its strengths before moving on to the bad, what sucked about a movie, what were its flaws or issues, and then we weigh whether or not the good outweighs the bad, give it a score, and then talk spoilers and final thoughts. Now, Shannon, we've talked a lot about our feelings about Ghostbusters, our past with Ghostbusters. I don't want to rehash that necessarily, but I will say it's obvious if you've listened to recent episodes and even our favorite movies of all time episodes, I believe, Mm. there is probably a great amount of anticipation on either side of the mic here for this film. I took this very seriously. I ordered shirts to go to the movies Mm -hmm. with so this is a very important franchise to me yes a very important sequel you've um even sung the praises of the 2016 movie but i'm curious the director's cut (laughs) 
I'm curious, as far as Ghostbusters Afterlife being a direct sequel of the 1984 movie, did it live up to ex your expectations? Nay, even exceed hmm. previous Ghostbusters movies. And what was good about Ghostbusters Afterlife? Ghostbusters Afterlife was almost a completely different movie. You know, you've got number one that's just poking fun at, I have this business idea for this thing that people are not going to believe in or they will believe in. They'll either love us hard or hate us hard. And, you know, there's a couple things that don't age well in Ghostbusters 1. And when you watch Ghostbusters 2, a lot of that... It, it you know when you take all four films into account in Ghostbusters 2 which I just watched is so far removed from all the other films mm. the best part of that is from the ghost montage to the Statue of Liberty that's like the best part but even in between there's some issues and a lot of other sh issues previously you get 2016's reboot and I love that one. I love it's it's the same as number one. It's just these these girls getting together. They're having a good time. It's hilarious, and they have a fun business idea, and they're really passionate about what they do. And and there's no sexist jokes, so it's fantastic. And then we have Ghostbusters Afterlife. It's so different. It's a film about family. It's a film about knowing oneself and taking brave steps in embracing that and trusting in intuition, trusting in science, trusting in other people. It's really wonderful, you know, in a time like right now where we have COVID, there's a lot of distrust going around with people. And then I watch this film and I'm like, look at how these people are interacting with each other. They're trusting each other. Uh, there's no backstabbing. It's fantastic. So I love the story that they've created where this family comes to this small town. And I love how some family members of the three of them, some embrace the community. And for others, the community embraces them. It's mm. a really fantastic back and forth community exchange happening. Well, I should clarify, it's not the entire community. Either way, it's just m certain members. Certain members, yeah. No, obviously that would be a bit overwhelming. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I, I loved how the characters were written. I loved the ghost effects. Mm. I love where the story went. It wasn't too predictable for me. I had hopes. I love this movie so much. I watched it again by myself the next day. Yeah, you literally, the yeah. next day, which was today. Yeah. We saw it opening night, Thursday. You went Friday afternoon, saw it again by yourself while I worked. And that is how much I love this movie. So mm. <laughs> I love the music. I There's just a lot to love. Yeah. I hope that this is kind of brief and helpful for others. Let me ask you something. Which one fulfilled your fantasies as a female Ghostbuster fan, female ghost head, more? 2016 or this one? Which one was more cathartic and emotional experience for you and more effective? That is such a good question. I had to take a moment 
<laughs> and really think about that and pull my emotions back in. It's a difficult question because the first two movies, it's it's very masculine movies. Yeah. Dana is so taken advantage of mm-hmm. in both films and not treated very well. And she's kind of this accessory. I love that she's there, but it is what it is. That's why 2016. So when 2016 came out and I saw Gillian Holtzman making proton pack improvements and wielding double fisting proton wands, uh-huh. it was so cathartic. And then seeing this one, I think 2016's experience was cathartic for sure. This one even more so. Mm. 2016, they're just they're having a lot of fun. They're kind of just tickling you know issues that women face when they want to take on something they're super passionate about that may be met with a lot of resistance but over here it's very it's a very different experience and I think it's a a lot more heart with all that other stuff that I got from 2016 so I think this one succeeds more there's a lot I want to share there's a lot I want to say I feel fairly limited here But this one is way more cathartic because not only am I getting to see myself represented holding a proton pack or some sort of Ghostbuster equipment, but it's going beyond that. Mm. These characters do not hold back on who they are. They know who they are. They are certain of who they are. And there's just so much bravery and confidence and stuff that I wish I had (laughs) when I was younger. And then there's this connection and searching for where are my roots and how could I not relate to that? Hmm. Well, here's what I'll say about this film. First of all, uh, I really liked it. I wanted to love it and go head over heels for it. I'm kind of restrained a little bit from that but i had a great time seeing this film i really like it my biggest the biggest thought i had watching this film the whole time was i was thinking this film does for ghostbusters what the force awakens did for star wars in the sense that it focuses on this new generation with new characters while also giving you everything you loved about the original Ghostbusters film and giving you more of those things you loved about the ghost, the original Ghostbusters film. And some of that works really well. Some of that does not. And I'll get into There's so much that we have to talk about in spoilers. So, I want to get to that as soon as I as possible. But what really was good about this film was a yes, it was a completely satisfying experience in many ways as a fan of Ghostbusters, having grown up with the original Ghostbusters movie. I really liked the new characters, particularly Finn Wolfhard and McKenna Grace, especially especially McKenna Grace's Phoebe. She is the star and the the VIP, the MVP of this movie. 
She is such a wonderful actress. She has a role in The Handmaid's Tale, I think season four, the latest one. And she's just phenomenal in that as well. So I can't wait to see more from her. And as I understand it, at the time of the production of this movie, she was only 13 years old. I don't know when Handmaid's Tale was filmed, That what you're she, talking about. but She definitely seems 14. She's 15-ish now. So at any rate, she's obviously an incredible talent. She's great here. I think... I expected Paul Rudd to do a little bit of his normal Paul Ruddness sort of stuff, and I didn't expect a lot from him. I I do I like him a lot in this movie. He worked really well in this movie. He's a little bit restrained by some of the things that the script requires of him to do, which I can talk about in the spoilers when we talk about what happens in the movie. But I think he's fantastic. He does not steal the show from people like McKenna Grace, though, uh, which is really kind of cool um, and selfless of him. He's definitely mindful of what his role is in a particular scene. You know, am I servicing the actress, the other co-stars in this particular scene? He only really, I think, gets one scene on his own, I believe. And he's fantastic in that one scene. He's, he's very relatable in that one scene, too. So there's a lot. There's a lot. I, I, I find the climax fairly satisfying as a fan. There's just a lot to talk about. Um, let's, let's talk about what the bad was. What didn't work for you? You had the benefit of seeing this movie twice. Was there anything that after you're able to calm your excitement, <laughs> you're able to process the movie a little more clearly, was there anything that stood out to you as flaws or issues or things that just didn't quite work for you the second time around? I have to say I was so high on adrenaline and excitement that I was thinking about this movie until I fell asleep. And then when I woke up for my dog, I thought about it some more, you know, in in the early morning and then fell asleep again. (laughs) So this is obviously something I love way more than Star Wars, way more than X-Men. As indicated in your favorite franchises. Sure, yeah. (laughs) And... Watching it a second time, I was the ex- I knew what was going to happen, so my excitement level was way down, mm-hmm. uh, which I believe is normal. And the experience was different. The only criticism I have at this point, and I'm planning to watch it a third time, <laughs> <laughs> maybe more. <laughs> Clearly, the sets are rich in design. And there's little pieces and artifacts and books and pages and papers and images everywhere Uh in two or three rooms. And I just wish that they took it just a little slower because I wanted to read what was on there. I I got to read a second, you know, second viewing. I got to take in the the smaller details and I just wanted them to, to just stop just a little bit there so I could finish reading. I got one or two sentences and I was hungry for more Hmm. of what I saw. And that was super interesting. There's one joke that I, that made me a little uncomfortable. I I think it could have been swapped for something else, but it's a, it's a minor thing at this point. This is really all I have. 
Wow. So one minor joke as a minor issue, and you wish that the camera didn't pan <laughs> so quickly. I, I wish there was more time to take in all the details. This film is so rich. It doesn't slow down. You should not go potty or drink anything before or during the film because you'll miss stuff mm. that's really important. Mm. There's, there's just a lot, and so it's super dense. It's not necessarily a fault, but it does move rather quickly. There's no time to breathe. Yeah, maybe that is the case. And why there were just little moments here or there where I thought there was just little tiny weaknesses in either character development or mm. interactions with other characters, perhaps, that maybe were taking shortcuts a little bit or trimmed a little bit more. I couldn't um, help but wonder this time because you had two particular scene issues that we'll talk about later and watching it a second time, I felt a little more resolved from that. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't help but think that they spent too much time with this film during quarantine and maybe edited out a lot of stuff to slim it down. Mm. I, I don't know what they did, but it, they did seem to work on it while we were on lockdown. Well, that was something that Jason Reitman openly admitted was a benefit of the pandemic. It was he got to work in the editing room a little bit more on the movie. I, I believe it was fine. I think it was finished with principal photography before the pandemic happened. So because it was supposed to come out last year. This is a 2020 holdover, by the way. And you can easily find posters that advertise that as such. So th those weren't even that wasn't even my main issue. My main issue is really like the same thing that I think is is great and works for the movie is also an issue for the movie, which is not all of the references and uh, stuff related to the original movie works. Sometimes the movie is a little overstuffed when it comes to fan service there are scenes there's an there's at least at least one scene at least that is absolute fan service there's even certain lines that kind of come across a little clunky mm. that are absolute fan service and and even the plot much like the force awakens it, you know, it's, it's, this movie is very much like Force Awakens in, in a variety of ways that we can talk about in spoilers. And so this is the best Ghostbusters movie, in my opinion, since the original Ghostbusters movie. I think it is just short of great because of it just kind of wanting to give fans everything and just be like hey remember that line remember that joke remember that moment remember this person whatever that's probably the biggest flaw in the film is it really going all out in that regard but we both feel really tied here so we we should really get into spoilers what are your what do you want to tell people who haven't seen the film yet please for the love of god wait stay you can go party you know when you see the big giant credits there's going to be some sketch credits and there'll be a, a what do you call it a scene 
a scene after you know you'll know what i'm talking about and after that scene go party be, be back the, for the credit crawl yeah the credit crawl and then after you see sony at the bottom the crawl is done there's another scene and it's worth staying for. Nobody stayed for it today at my screening. Mm. And yesterday, I think half the people stayed. And I just mm. felt so awful and mm. angry. <laughs> well, because that, that last scene meant a lot to me. Well, it's their loss. We'll talk about that scene, both scenes momentarily. You definitely think the good outweighs the bad. Yeah, obviously. And what do you score the film? Nine and a half. Not, okay. I get a half. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Yes, the good definitely outweighs the bad. If you're a fan from the 80s, grew up with the movies, grew up with the cartoon series, this is, you don't want to miss this movie. You, don't even, you probably don't even have to listen to us. You're probably going to see the movie anyway. And uh, I don't think you'll be disappointed at all. Go see this movie. You know, it's the Reitman's. Uh, Ivan Reitman produced over Jason Reitman's shoulder directing this film. They definitely figured out how to uh, do it, give it justice. So go see the movie. As far as what I score the film, I'm going to be conservative and give it a 7 out of 10. Until I see it again, I think 7 out of 10, just short of great film. I don't think you need a Ghostbusters shirt anymore. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So those are our thoughts on the Ghostbusters Afterlife pre-spoilers. If you haven't seen the movie, check this timestamp on the show notes. Skip ahead to the film faves segment. Otherwise, if you have seen the movie after opening weekend, come along with us. We're going to talk in spoilers just a little more freely some of our thoughts on Ghostbusters Afterlife starting now. Okay, Shanna. So I don't want to talk about every little detail and every little scene, but let's... I think I can summarize it. Okay, if you want. I was going to just uh, talk about the overall plot first, but go right ahead. Oh, if you think you've got it nailed, I guess go for it. Well, I mean, okay, you have two stories melded into one basically you have this whole like family being evicted learning they just inherited a house uh mill nowhere from a very estranged family member that none of the family members know and um it's a dilapidated farmhouse in this community and then basically going through the house and discovering things then you have this other plot, which is really like takes over in the second half of the film, which is the original plot of first Ghostbusters, which is Gozer, Zool, Keymaster, Gatekeeper, that whole thing. That's basically rehashed in the second half of the film, just with a new set of characters you basically have this romance that is created between Paul Rudd's science science teacher and Carrie Coon's mom figure that is exploited to be the key master and the gatekeeper that allows Gozer to be able to come out. And during with within all this, we learn that Egon has been trying to stop 
this from happening for who knows how long. It's very vague. I think it's 30 years. Okay, maybe it's not vague. Maybe they actually say 30 years. Yeah. Lots of questions with the Carrie Coon question, uh, character, by the way, if you think about the timeline of things. But, you know, that's the Force Awakens of this all. Where the Force Awakens was about this Death Star type thing and this Empire type organization and stopping the Death Star type thing, but also introducing a new generation and all that sort of stuff, right? That's what I mean when I say this is the the Force Awakens of Ghostbusters. And also all the fan service stuff and giving you more of everything that you loved. I mean, you get the Ecto-1. And not only that, but you learn that there was a gunner seat in the Ecto-1. That wasn't even in the toy of the Ecto-1. Well, actually, I thought it was. Okay, so it yes, it is, but it's different. It, it, there's a gunner seat in the sense that there's a seat that sits on the top of the car with like two two guns. Well, on it you know, car. toys can Hasbro can only do so much. Yeah, it's not a, a seat doesn't pop out of the side or anything like that. So that was a really kind of cool mm. thing. And I don't know if they're like, hey, you know that thing they did in the toys <laughs> or what, but you know, it's a very cool thing with Ecto. You get a teenager who isn't even licensed behind the wheel. Well, he, I mean. He's trying. He failed three times. To get a license yourself. Yeah. Yes. I say that because you get a lot of driving of the Ecto-1 and a lot of quote-unquote action with the Ecto-1. I mean, the only thing that's not in this movie from the original is Slimer, a.k.a. Onion Head Ghost from the original movie. That's the only thing that doesn't come back up in this film from the original. And Louis Tully. Lewis totally doesn't show up. You're you're biting your lip. Well, I'm just running it through my head, making sure that I haven't missed anything that you've mentioned. Okay. Well, we don't have Walter Peck. That's well, kind of sad. That's that's true. And there's no reference to Walter <laughs> there's, Peck. There's no one saying. There's no mayor. But you do get a, tw- a shot of a Twinkie. You get a shot of a even a freaking crunch Nestle Crunch bar. You get a shot of. You know, there's so but many. But that things. was that was significant. Why? Remember in the first film. Mm-hmm. I mean, why is it that significant? That's just a well, moment in the first film. Um, it's important. It's about Egon. Like Peter is like, you've earned it. And he gives him a crunch bar. Yeah. And we're learning about Egon. We're finding these bits and pieces of him. We see his glasses. We see the crunch bar. I, we know that Egon has a sweet tooth. You're hitting a note that I, I did gloss over, which is we learned that the that the family is related to Egon Spengler. That is a spoiler, but yes, that's the connection that ties the two stories together. And it turns out that Egon has been, um, has moved purposely to this small town because, and I picked up on this way before mm-hmm. you did, I was very proud of myself comparatively okay. because uh, there is a Shandor mining company. That was the first, one of the first references to the original movie, Shandor. Evo Shandor was the architect of the apartment building in the original film. He used, if you remember, there was an exposition scene in a jail sale in the original film where I believe it is Egon who is explaining that Evo Shandor used different uh, types of metal, metallurgy. Well, then I think Ray talks about how it was selenium or, or whatever it oh, is. Oh, then maybe it was Ray. Anyway, it turns out that all of that was mined 
in this town that Evo essentially owned or set up or established or what he have you. He built the town built so the that town. he could have the mining operation and... There you go. So Egon moved there purposely and went off the grid and all this sort of stuff and devoted his life, sacrificed family and everything. So here's the thing. Carrie Coon is supposedly Egon's daughter... How does that work? Because Carrie Coon's like 40. They don't get specific about how old the character is. It's suggested that Egon didn't end up with Janine Melnitz, which surprises me. And at some point he had a family after the movie. But the movie, the original movie takes place in 1984. So is Carrie Coon supposedly playing her early 30s? Instead of her early 40s? Well, I think early 30s is possible. If she had, she has dad issues. She never got to meet her dad. and But she also has a 12-year-old. So? And is it 12? I think it's 12. 12-year-old and a... 15. 15-year-old. Yeah. Right? There's a lot that's not explained is what I'm trying to get at. There's a lot that's not explained about what happened with Egon, who the mom even is. I can't find that information anywhere, and I don't think that it matters. Why? Because this is really Phoebe's story. Phoebe, Egon, and goes a story. <laughs> okay, but it's part of the story, and so I'm just, yeah, it's part I'm just of it. you know, breaking it down a little bit, you know. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. So anyway, we learned that they're related to Egon. And that, that's something that you hit on. We glossed over. I just wanted to emphasize that. What did you want to talk about in spoilers? I just really wanted to talk about how wonderful you had asked which is more cathartic. And I couldn't really express that earlier. The reason this one is so much more cathartic is because it's tying family together family that's been lost. Egon was lost to them. Callie didn't know her father. Trevor and Phoebe didn't know their grandfather. It turns out Phoebe is like an exact copy of her grandfather, which is typically how it works, right? It's always like skip a generation and you're probably more like your, your grandparents than you think. And she totally trusted the PKE meter. She saw a chess piece move she oh my God. moved it. She The PKE meter leads her to so many different things. It leads her to the ghost trap. She yeah. solves a maze, gets the ghost trap out. She gets led to this wonderful, you know, obviously Egon loved the fire pole. She gets led to this fire pole that takes her to an underground office space where all of Egon's stuff is, sentimental stuff, his equipment. And it's this wonderful absolutely divine guidance by her grandfather that she just totally trusts. I completely forgot in the previous segment to mention one of the issues I had, which was, and I was going to speak broadly to it. Now I can speak freely. She literally says she does not believe in ghosts. Okay. There are things that happened in the basement early on in the movie that she does not react to as someone who does not believe in ghosts. I don't think it's a matter of not believing in ghosts. I think she just doesn't believe in a particular kind of ghost. No, she, she literally said, I don't believe in ghosts. Remember that conversation with podcast? Yeah, well, then they have another conversation where 
she, you know, she has the proton pack and she explains to podcast who I love, by the way, Logan Kim is awesome. Mm. She explains that I got to meet my grandfather last night. Yeah. She just mentioned it nonchalantly. And, and he says, oh, was he in chains and wailing? And she was like, no, that would be weird. So I think her belief just grows. Yeah, but it's not. That would be fine, but nothing is expressed in a way that makes sense. That's actually one of the issues I had with the movie is Paul Rudd is mostly the only person who reacts to situations as you would expect someone to a normal person to react to these situations. I feel like. I don't know if it's necessarily that people are doing what the script needs them to do. I don't think that's necessarily it. I just feel like. (sighs) I think stuff got cut out. If you think about the first trailer we saw, one of the first trailers we saw, Paul Rudd looks at Mr. Gruberson, looks at Phoebe and says, who are you? He doesn't say that in this movie. I thought he did. No, he didn't. Uh, I was I was waiting for it the second time and okay. he doesn't say it. Okay. So I think I think little snippets have been taken out and I understand that you know you're analyzing this movie as a movie like okay like how well are you movieing? But I'm okay with it. I'm I'm okay. I take it as she started trusting the situation she was in. Mm, I just even, I, I if wasn't, was a, even if there was a moment where like the light turns on its own towards her if she would just like look behind the light, like what the hell is going on there? Something, um, just a little gesture would have been something more than what we, we get. And it's not, again, it's, I don't mean to make a big thing out of it, but it's something that I forgot to mention. That is a, that was a, an issue I had with it, which is especially her. She doesn't react to things when she adamantly... Like, why else have that line in the movie of her saying, I don't believe in ghosts, if you're not going to set up her experiencing ghosts and have her react in a way that you would think someone who adamantly doesn't believe in ghosts would react? I'll push back a little bit on that. She does actually admit later that she doesn't emote how others emote. So it's entirely possible that she was scared or was like, what the frick is happening? And we just didn't see it how we're used to seeing it. And she should at least use her words because we are the audience as a character in a movie. She needs to at least express what she's thinking. Okay. There was a little thing that I had an issue with. Um, The second time I watched this, somehow Trevor, the brother, knows about the Manhattan ghost stories and Phoebe doesn't know at all. Uh, I don't know how Trevor got to know about it. Yeah. So I thought that that was interesting, that it never got talked about. And you know, you had said earlier that this movie completely ignores maybe even retcons Ghostbusters 2. I believe so, yeah. And why wouldn't he know about what happened to the Statue of Liberty, right? Yeah, because that's definitely something you would know in a post or while Phoebe's going through videos, like you would have seen something like that. And again, this is one of those rich tapestry egg backgrounds where you wish you had a second or two more to read the what she's looking up and what's coming up in her search history. But that would have been there. There would have been an image. No, you wouldn't need an image. It's the fucking Statue of Liberty. It's the National Monument 
it's a national monument. It would be common knowledge if the fucking Statue of Liberty got up and walked into New Manhattan. You know, <laughs> like that wouldn't be a thing that anyone would have to research. And the movie doesn't acknowledge that. What at I'm all. saying is, there would be footage coming up in her research. Okay, just because something happened. I believe they say 30 or so years ago. Yeah. It, it doesn't mean that it comes up every day or every month or every year even to educate the new people. What I'm saying with this is that they obviously retconned and ignored all of that. Yeah. Because there's no sign of it anywhere in any form. Right. What I was trying to say is emphasizing your point about Finn Wolfhard's character is he would know about that. Yeah, he would have said something. Yes. Like he would have said the ghosts, Statue of Liberty, slime, you know. Yes. There would have been a mention. Exactly. So I like that they took away Ghostbusters too because starting to watch it again, I realized how bad it really was. Don't get me wrong. I'm always going to love Statue of Liberty and one day I will be Statue of Liberty with Ghostbusters <laughs> playing higher and higher, you know, in a costume. But it's a bad movie and I realize that now. Hmm. Yeah, so did you did you like the whole Gozer, Terror Dog, all that sort of stuff? Oh, God. I loved Gozer. I laughed so much. Something I didn't mention earlier was I laughed a lot in this movie. No one laughed at my screening today. Some people, I think, laughed in last night's screening. But I was surprised how people didn't laugh. Coming to Gozer, I loved that J.K. Simmons, he <laughs> built this place for her to bring her because he loves her. He loved, And sure. I'm calling Gozer her because that's what I want. I know that Gozer can choose what, what they want to be. Right. It's not but, necessarily a she or a him. But but she looks fabulous. And I've always loved that there's this badass woman, okay, as a, as a woman. So I love that J.K. Simmons is there. And he's in absolute awe when he sees Gozer come out of the pool of death. To be clear, it's Evo Shangdor. Yeah. Uh, yes. And he's like, my love, we can rule the world together. And she's like, I'm not fucking wasting my time on you. And she tears him in half it's fantastic not so much the tearing in half but what she does afterwards she she doesn't want to see this human she wants to go to her dogs and she goes and pets her dogs and is happy to see them and i was like oh you know gozer isn't that bad she's a dog person it's okay <laughs> i loved the humor in that i saw that humor and i don't know if it was intentional but i was like she just wants to see her damn dogs like, get out of her way yeah <laughs> i was just a little bummed that as soon as i'm able to recognize oh it's jk simmons in the movie he's killed why cast jk simmons for literally 10 seconds of footage it's so unnecessary it could have been anyone it's entirely possible there was lost footage of him we're only going to know later. It doesn't feel like it. Okay. All right. So now we're running a little long. We need to knock out a quick discussion about the two scenes. I don't have a lot to say about the first one, except I didn't really like it. Um, I felt like it was, it, it, it didn't fit with the flow of the rest of the movie, and it felt total fan service forced to have um, not only reference an early scene of Peter Venkman, in the original movie, but also to force Sigourney Weaver in a cameo. Sure, Sigourney Weaver could have been weaved in some other way, but I was happy to see it. What Peter Venkman had done now as a grown woman, and I'm able to see things, with kind of fishing for trying to have relationships with women in a creepy way, I'm totally fine with him getting electrocuted and him saying, 
it was fraud science. I admit that. I know that now. And Dana sorting that out. I'm perfectly happy with that. I feel like it resolves a lot of stuff for me. So for you, it might feel like fan service, but for me, it's healing. All right. Uh, really, the the scene after the credits is the one of any substance and significance. It really focuses on Janine Melnitz visiting Winston, and Winston kind of carries on about what he's been mm-hmm. able to do with his life. Mm-hmm. More importantly... What he plans to do with it. Which we don't know explicitly, but he does bring Ecto-1 back to New York City. Uh, at one point, Dan Aykroyd, Ray, Ray had said that the firehouse had turned into a Starbucks. And this, what we see does not cohere with that. I think they messed up there a little bit. He okay. does talk about the area being a Starbucks. Are you sure so, it's the area, not the building? Because I, I, I remember explicitly him saying the building. Like it's a Starbucks now, but I don't, I don't know. The firehouse, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we see Winston go, go back to the firehouse, and he is going to take care of Ecto-1. It is suggested, I think, that Winston's going to go back to his Ghostbusters days to some capacity. I feel like there's a lot of potential here. I don't know what game plan they have. I hope they have a game plan because I would like to play some more. Uh, Because Peter Venkman says something like, hey, Peter from the home office, thanks for pitching in. Uh, It's funny that he's now like an advertising professor. Mm. And I thought that that was interesting. I think there's a lot of potential there. We've only read one of the graphic novels of the Ghostbusters, and there's oh there's God, just yeah. so much that they could do, and I, I really hope that they do some more. Particularly with the younger generation, I would rather see more of Phoebe and her brother than trying to get the old Ghostbusters back together. Yeah, I'm happy with them being in the background in some capacity, whether it's a statuette like in 2016 with Egon, or Harold Ramis, and I'm okay if Winston shines some more because I feel like he didn't get to shine enough in Ghostbusters 1 and 2. Fair enough. Because that is something that in all the scripts that Dan Aykroyd had tooled around with for a third film, which he's not credited on this script, which means they started from the drawing board and created a new script, but I know his intention was always to pass the baton to a younger generation. And we got a little bit of that in this movie. So it'd be nice to see it continue in the next one. Any last thoughts? Uh, we didn't talk about Lucky. I liked her. Mm. Uh, I'm happy seeing more of her okay. as well as podcast. I like the group that we've established. All right. Uh, it sounds like we, we both recommend... Uh, of course, seeing this film, what are your thoughts on Ghostbusters Afterlife? Email us at gibsonreview at gmail.com. Now it's time for Film Faves. Film Faves is a segment of the show where we count down our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. 
The idea is not only to give you a sense of our taste in movies, but also hopefully expose you to some titles you haven't heard of before or just haven't gotten around to seeing. To that end, we let you know if a movie on our list is available on a streaming subscription service. There's a lot of those out there, so we just focus on Amazon Prime, Apple TV+, Disney+, Hulu, HBO Max, and Netflix. Yeah? Yeah, I think you got them, Eddie. Okay, cool. This time, we are focusing on comfort food movies. Movies that are comfort food for us. And what our favorites are that serve that purpose. Interestingly enough, one might assume that, hey, if it's one of our favorite movies of all time, it must be comfort food. I didn't find that to be necessarily true. Which uh, I did. <laughs> well, how many movies on your 12... Because that's what I was going to get yeah. to is how many movies on your twelve that you can't add on your list were is actually comfort food. There are for you? six. There are six movies. See, okay, half my list because I'm a feeling person. Okay, still there's half of your movies that aren't, and for me it was like three or four. Hmm. Okay, so that's not necessarily the case, but there are a handful that couldn't include on your list. Shanna, I'm curious for you. I'll explain what it was like for me, but curious for you, what does the term comfort food mean to you when it comes to films? And what did you find were commonalities or, you know, what ended up being what you considered to be comfort food? Was nostalgia a factor, I guess, is one thing I'm getting at. Comfort movies for me is definitely a combination of things it could be nostalgia it could be do I feel empowered by this is there a lesson here that I need to remind myself of constantly does the does the whole picture make me happy is is it the music that's healing for me is there a relationship represented in here that I can relate to uh, and it's not necessarily like a spouse relationship but more like family is it funny? But then if it's sad, is it a cathartic cry for me? Like, have I not been able to cry over something that's happened in uh, my real life? And is this going to help me have that release? So it's it's a combination of things. But I did find that what I was left with is there's, there's quite a bit of kids movies on here, family movies, and nothing too crazy. At one point, I was like, well, is Mad Max Fury Road a comfort film for me? Mm. Because it kind of falls into that I feel really empowered and I feel represented here category. And it it didn't, it can't be on the list, but it technically didn't make it either. Mm. You know, you, you touch on something that was definitely true for me as well, which was comfort food movies are not movies that are edgy. Uh, I found <laughs> they are, they are more often not four quadrant films. Movies that are safe for everyone, often family movies. For me, I think nostalgia definitely plays mm. a factor. Mm -hmm. And so most of my picks are from the 80s and 90s. Mm. Actually, is there, I'm not sure if there is a single pick that is more recent than the 90s. There is not for me. So definitely. A familiarity is a big factor in comfort food. Mm -hmm. For me, it's like I'm not feeling well or I'm just so tired. I just want something 
familiar, something that cheers me up. Something, something that you could fall asleep to and wake up again and you know exactly what's happened. Right, exactly. Something I've practically memorized. I've seen it so many times. These are the qualities of comfort food for me, right? It's mm. like in the actual literal sense of comfort food of what, you know, you are either eating your feelings, right? Or you are eating to satisfy something. And and in this sense, you're watching something that is calming you or easing you or, or just feels good for you, right? Yeah. I wanted to address, you know, you talked about things from the 80s. And did you say 90s too? That was the case for my list. Okay. Well, I've just noticed, like, I've got stuff from the 80s something from the 90s, something from 1964, and then a couple from the 2000s. Okay. So I think I have quite a variety here. I'm pretty proud of myself. You do. Well, would you like to dive into your number 12 favorite comfort food movie? Sure. We've got Ghostbusters from 2016. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, There's nothing better than seeing four women have a really good time with a franchise that I love. And I guess I recently discovered how I I see this film. Uh, Not only am I excited that I'm seeing myself represented, but I also feel like it's just a bunch of girls having fun with basically it's like an SNL skit, you know? So it's them having fun with a franchise that already exists and I don't take it I don't take it personally like other people do. I thought it was a fine movie especially if you watch the director's cut. I just I love watching Melissa McCarthy, Kristen Wiig, Kate McKinnon and Leslie Jones really nail this thing for me. Excellent. My 12th favorite comfort food movie and by the way ranking this was actually a little hard and weird. Uh, and you will hear a lot of picks of movies that I never get to talk about here. So I'm really glad and excited about this. But number 12 for me is 1991's Hook. I considered that. Oh, very good. Yeah. Often considered one of Spielberg's worst movies, one of his bastard children. Uh, I am Team Hook. Thank you very much. I am Team Rufio, all that sort of stuff. You have Robin Williams playing Peter Pan as an adult being forced to go back to Neverland as Captain Hook, played by Dustin Hoffman, has kidnapped his kids. Bob Hoskins played Smee. I just thought the casting was tremendous. The main, you know, I remember as an adult, I was blown away by hearing that the critical community just absolutely reviles Hook and anybody hates Hook. And I'm like, why? What's the problem with Hook? And it took me several years to actually hear concretely. I guess it mostly feels like it's it's sets. Like it feels like it takes place on sets. That's the lar- That's the biggest thing I've, I've heard as main issues wow. with it. That That's what they um, want to bitch about? Well, wow. I'm just saying that's, that's what I've discovered. Um, maybe there's other things, but that's what I heard. I, I don't care. There's too much. Uh, there's too much that I love about this. Too many great moments, and it's it's a it's a fun film. So, Hook, 1991, my twelfth favorite comfort food movie. My number eleven is another one by Melissa Melissa McCarthy, from 2015. It is Spy. No kidding. Melissa McCarthy is a CIA operative. She is a 
analyst and she helps another agent be out there in the field. And when something happens to him, she takes it upon herself to be an agent in the field. And a lot of hilarity ensues. This is one of those films that's kind of parodying other spy films like James Bond and other action things like Crank. And we've got the guy from Crank in there. What is his name? Oh, Jason Statham? Yeah, Jason Statham is in there being a total clown and it's hilarious. And I I just, I love this film. I think it's hilarious. I, it makes me feel good every time. There's bizarre music in it. There's bizarre situations in it. And I just think it really turns the male spy hero on its head. I really love Rose Byrne in that movie too. Yes. My 11th favorite comfort food movie is from 1986. It is Iron Eagle. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Now, a lot of people say that this is a Top Gun knockoff, and I could be corrected here, but I thought Top Gun was a 1987 movie, which would mean Iron Eagle came first. Look, there's elements of this movie about a teenager learning the ropes in order to be able to take things in his own hands and save his father from capture in the Middle East that maybe don't quite hold up these days or feel really dated. But I love the soundtrack. I love, oh, I forgot his name, Jason... Jason something plays the uh, the lead. Uh, I just spaced on his name because it's late at night. Louis Gossett Jr. is fantastic in that. I just love the cast. And, you know, this kid, he he needs to listen to music in order to, like, get in his groove and all that sort of stuff. And I don't know. It's something. It's a movie I always loved. And so it's, a, it's one of my comfort food movies. 11th favorite. It's from 1986, Iron Eagle. My number 10 is Elf. From 2003, it's available on HBO Max. This is uh, this stars Will Ferrell. I hate Will Ferrell until I watch this. And then I'm like, you know what? You're not so bad. I like you. You're doing a good job. And the casting in this is just phenomenal. We've got Peter Dinklage, Mary Steenburgen, who I love, Zoe Deschanel, Bob Newhart, James Caan, and, you know, our star, Buddy, Will Ferrell. He is living in Santa's workshop, Santa's world, and he doesn't know that he's a human. And he goes to New York to discover his father to help him get off the naughty list. And it's just a wonderful film about family, about Christmas, about the joy that exists there. It's comfort food for me because it makes Christmas amazing. And it's how I want Christmas to be for the rest of my life, uh, no matter how adult I am and what experiences I have. It just sparks inspiration. It makes me, you know, what he does in the store, all these paper chains and cutouts and gold trimming and stuff, makes me want to do that to the house. So if I see a GIF, it doesn't matter what time of the year it is, it makes me happy. Uh, Jason Gedrick. I just remember Jason Gedrick was the star of Iron Eagle. My 10th favorite is The NeverEnding Story from 1984. Now, I, what, last year we did a dragon movie list, and mm-hmm. that led me to do a lot of research, catching up on a lot of movies, and I came away from that thinking, wow, the fantasy genre was really, really in a tough shape before Lord of the Rings. The NeverEnding Story was one of the few bright spots in fantasy. 
it is slim at like less than 90 minutes or something like that but boy did it spark my imagination as a kid all the different creatures and all the different possibilities i just love that movie so much and uh it was a, it was a big deal as a kid i mean we even watched it in school once or twice so uh that is definitely a film that uh Needed to be shouted out here as a comfort food film for me. The Neverending Story from 1984. My number nine is available on Disney+. Plus. It is Mary Poppins from 1964, starring Julie Andrews, Dick Van Dyke, and David Tomlinson. That is a great fucking pick. I it is. don't know why it didn't even occur to me. I don't know why either. This is a two-hour, 20-minute comfort film. It, it it gets better every time I watch it. It becomes more apparent how this is not about just children having fun and a like, musical of, you know, great songs, but it's really about family. And, you know, as a parent, it it's really about becoming present again. Uh, IMDb describes this as a magical nanny who's employing music and adventure to help their to help two neglected children become closer to their father. She's she's this magical nanny, this being that is coming into this family's life and helping them heal and change patterns of parenting uh the father is working all the time because he's obviously trying to do what he can for his kids but really all the kids want is for their father to be with them and it's just fantastic it's about making priorities it's about relationships i just adore it yeah that's a great pick i'm surprised it didn't occur to me however my ninth favorite comfort food movie is my first one to be available on a streaming subscription service it is also on disney plus it is from 1991 it is the rocketeer oh i thought that might make your list that's nice with a score by i believe james horner Mm. as i discovered when we were researching our favorite scores one of my favorite composers as it turns out i love that score and i'm listening to it in my head Right now, this movie <laughs> is about a, a pilot who stumbles across a jetpack and with the, friend, with the help of his friend, who is Alan Arkin, if I remember correctly, decides to become something of a superhero. And it turns out he, stum- he is stepping into a Nazi plot. And now so weird. he must stop the Nazis, represented by Timothy Dalton. Uh, there's there's a lot of things about this movie I love. I, I I love the score. Yes, there's a wholesomeness to it. There's a lot of moments and lines that I remember from it. Jennifer Connelly co-stars in it as a character who was created and inspired by Betty Page, mm. and she is to die for in this movie. She's so beautiful. Love her. Billy Campbell. I love this guy. He went on to star in one of my favorite TV shows, and he's great in this uh, movie, too. Anyway, The Rocketeer is absolute comfort food for me. An early, great superhero film from 1991. It's available on Disney+. Plus. That's great, hun. My number eight is available on Disney Plus as well, and it's from 1987. It is Harry and the Hendersons, starring John Lithgow, Melinda Dillon, 
And uh, really fun for me, Lainey Kazan, who's in My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Oh. She's like the neighbor. She's so fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The nosy neighbor. Yeah. I, I have loved this film for a very long time. It was difficult for me to understand. Growing up in South Africa, Sasquatch isn't a thing. Uh, they have other things. The Henderson family adopt a friendly Sasquatch but have a hard time trying to keep him, keep the legend of Bigfoot a secret. This is happening in the Pacific Northwest, just outside Seattle. I mean, we've driven to Mount St. Helens. We've, yeah. Mount, have we driven to Mount Rainier also? Yeah, but it's very vague for me. We, we, you know, we drive to either of those mountains and it feels like I'm in this movie and it's just awesome. It's filmed also a little bit in Ballard. So you can kind of see the streets there. It's changed a lot, but you kind of get a sense of what it used to be like. And it's just really funny how sweet and kind this huge, massive creature is and how it changes John Lithgow's character Mm. and how he becomes brave and stands up to his dad and really embraces who he is himself and who doesn't want to watch John Lithgow as long as he's not murdering people being the bad guy I think anything with John Lithgow can be comforting yeah comforting yes yes he's he's good in practically everything though oh yeah absolutely but I don't want to like be comforted by him being a murderer sure my eighth favorite comfort food movie is the monster squad from 1987 This movie essentially combines the Universal Monster movies into one film with kids uh, teaming up to fight them. It is essentially the Goonies for movie monsters, and I am here for it. A lot of people in my generation adore the Goonies. I thought the Goonies was all right. I adored the Monster Squad. I'm here for that. Thank you very much. The Wolfman, the, the creature, you know, Wolfman's got nards, all that sort of stuff. I am absolutely here for one of my, what, what I think is one of the best Dracula performances. Everything is fantastic. Uh, mummy in my, mummy in my room, all that sort of stuff. So good. That is Monster Squad 1987. Is my eighth favorite comfort food movie. My number seven is available on Disney Plus from 2008. I'm surprised it's on Disney Plus. It's Horton Hears a Who. Really? Interesting yeah, pick. Parent, well, you know, it's... Okay. Well, let's say who's in here. All right. Jim Carrey is Horton. Steve Carell is the mayor. We've got Carol Burnett as the kangaroo. And Will Arnett as Vlad. Seth Rogen. Uh, and Isla Fisher, Jonah Hill, there's so many in here. There's Amy Puller, and I'm just going to stop there because it'll keep going. There's a phenomenal cast in this. Horton Hears a Who is one of my favorite Dr. Seuss books. It's just so wonderful seeing a a story so well executed. They use different styles of animation to keep the story going and emulate each character's feelings. Horton comes across a speck. He can hear the speck because elephants have excellent hearing and he protects the speck at all costs. Just because not you can't see what's there doesn't mean there's nothing there. He hears them and realizing they're just so small he can't even see them but knows that they're there, he realizes he needs to be the one to protect them. He needs to protect them from waterfalls, rocks, birds and characters that believe if you can't see something, it's not there. Within that world, 
there's an issue happening as well. The mayor's son is distant, uh, isn't like him, and he needs to grow an understanding that, you know, not all your children are going to be exactly like you. So there's a lot of things happening in this film. It's executed well. Uh, The story is obviously fantastic. And I just, you know, I think seeing the Grinch, how the Grinch stole like the live action one with Jim Carrey, I was like, well, this is this is fun, you know, but it's not fantastic. Mm. And then I think the cat in the hat came after that. Mm -hmm. And that was sorely disappointing Mm. but then watching this this was fantastic this Mm. was really it's my favorite dr seuss film very good my seventh favorite comfort food movie is harry and the hendersons uh from 1987 i'm sorry what yeah that's fantastic yeah yeah especially since this isn't a movie i showed you as I recall. No, I grew up with this film. We both grew up with this film, mm-hmm. respectively, from opposite sides of the world. Isn't that so sweet, guys? It is so cool. <laughs> and uh, yes, this was a big part of my childhood, this movie. I love it. I think it's funny. I love John Lithgow in it. Absolutely. <laughs> I love all the cast members in, in the family. Don Amici as well. The dinner he has mm. where they tell him what's going on. All that sort of stuff is fantastic. And I think the guy who played Poirot plays oh. a hunter who's yeah, hunting. So weird. If I remember correctly, yeah. which is just fascinating. Anyway, Harry and the Hendersons, uh, just absolute wholesome family movie, even touching near the end. I love it. It's one of my comfort food movies for sure. Now we are at the halfway point, Shanna. What is your sixth favorite comfort food movie? My sixth favorite comfort food movie is comforting because it makes me continuously believe in love and being present and keeping my relationship strong with not only you, love, but also my family. Okay. It is available on Netflix. It's from 2013. It is about time. Yeah, at age 21, Tim discovers he can travel in time and change what happens and has happened in his own life. And it has repercussions. So if he chooses to help one friend, it means that he's not going to achieve X that same night and he has to kind of fight for it. Mm. And the lessons that he learns as he goes through his little time traveling not necessarily mishaps, but experiments and learning how to do it is very interesting. And the stars, Domhnall Gleeson and Rachel McAdams, Bill Nye is the dad. We've got Lydia Wilson, Lindsay Duncan, and Richard Cordray is a very sweet character in this film. I just... Margot Robbie also. Margot Robbie is in there. Very early Margot Robbie role. It's so fun. I I love this film. There are a lot of romance films out there, a lot of films that think they know what love is, but this one is, is really perfect. Okay, so for my sixth favorite, once again, we go back to Disney Plus. Disney Plus, of course, Disney in general, probably of corn in the market on comfort food for a lot of people. <laughs> they We have a Touchstone Pictures film here as my sixth favorite. It is from 1987, big year for me. Apparently, this is the third film from that year on my list, Adventures in Babysitting. Oh, 
that makes sense. <laughs> Starring Elizabeth Shue, Keith Coogan, Anthony Rapp, I believe is his name. And it also uh, there's a handful of people that's in this movie. Uh, it's essentially about a teenage girl gets stuck babysitting a, a, a couple kids, one of which is near her age and has a huge crush on her. And they end up having to go into the city to try to help her friend and just misadventures ensue one thing after another. It's a fun movie and there's some key moments that are very much like man this is an 80s family movie which means there's elements that are not appropriate for people today like don't fuck with the babysitter <laughs> but uh, and the whole playboy thing but it, it, it was definitely a staple in my household growing up and uh, don't fuck with the babysitter was definitely a favorite line with the with all the members members of my family growing up. Gee, it's a pity I can't use that. That would be <laughs> fucking <laughs> hilarious. No, it would be so fucking fired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so that's my sixth favorite. It is available on Disney Plus again. Adventures in Babysitting. My number five is from 1988. It is The Land Before Time. Ah. I just hear the words Land Before Time. I just see a gif of Land Before Time and instantly the James Horner. Is it James Horner? I believe so. Oh, gosh, I hope I'm right. But the theme plays in my head and I relive not only the film that I know so well, but I also relive how old I was when I would watch it. I can see where I was. I can see what kind of lighting was coming in the room that day. And this was a film that was on repeat in our house, but it, somehow it comes back to a particular day. And I don't know what else happened that day in my life, but not only am I a kid again when I watch this, but this is my cathartic cry film if mm. i'm not able to cry because i'm so angry or so exhausted or whatever it is i go and watch this one i also watch inside out for that but this is definitely one of those it's about an orphan brontosaurus who teams up with other young dinosaurs in order to reunite with their families in the great valley so it's this journey that they're going on and it's not easy it's baby dinos and it's you know, it feels like extinction is coming, but I yeah. don't know. I guess they averted for another 27 films. So <laughs> whatever it is, um, you know, this, I, I think I've mentioned it before, but this was the first merchandise that we had in South Africa was right. Jurassic Park with Land Before Time. Uh, somehow they paired those two up. Yeah. Even though I guess, the years were five yeah, years the, apart. Yeah. So what must have happened is, the Land Before Time just arrived in time for Jurassic Park. Well, there could have been a re-release, too. <laughs> well, it's it's also South Africa post-apartheid, so I, I think it has something to do with that, too. But I remember there being so much merchandise and just wanting it all. <laughs> so your fifth favorite is a Don Bluth movie with James Horner's score. And my fifth favorite I'm is gonna a walk away now, Don so that I don't cry. Bluth <laughs> movie with a James Horner score is 1986's An American Tale, mm. which it always surprises me that this movie doesn't hit, doesn't connect with you as much as Land Before Time. It connects just as hard. It's too relatable. <laughs> just thinking about it and hearing the score makes me want to cry. <laughs> and then all you have to do is say, Mama, Mama, 
no, as, no, 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 as no, our no. dog. No, no, no. Papa, Papa. But you do Mama, Mama for me. And then I just <laughs> burst into tears for no damn reason. Okay, so for those who aren't familiar, because there's an entire generation or two who are not familiar with this movie, unfortunately, even though this movie was played ad nauseum in my school and my 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 class, my generation absolutely adored this movie. And it had a theme, uh, uh, not a love song, not a theme song, but it had a song that was a big radio hit as well somewhere, somewhere out there. This is about a family of Russian mice who emigrate to the United States for a better life. Check. Check. <laughs> and, you know, it discovers how uh, difficult it is, but also they, they, they get separated, too. Uh, the son, Fievel Mouskowitz, gets separated. Anyway, I love this film. It has wonderful voice talents of Christopher Plummer and Dom DeLuise. Uh, wonderful songs, beautiful score. Uh, it is a great film for me. It's my fifth favorite comfort food movie. All right, Shama, we're in the home stretch here. Only four more movies. Let's go. <laughs> What's your fourth favorite? My number four is from 1989. Yeah. I have two, I have three, no, I have two films from 1989. The 80s was a fantastic time. <laughs> so it is Field of Dreams. Oh. Yeah. Starring Kevin Costner, it. James Earl Jones. This is like my favorite James Earl Jones film. It is more quotable than Star Wars. Whoa. <laughs> I don't know about that. With James Earl Jones specifically. Uh, like, yeah. Whatever. It's fucking you Darth just, Vader, hello. Look, I think it's been established I'm more a ghost head than I am a Star Wars person. Mm. So I'm just going to move along. Ray Liotta, Amy Madigan, who I just freaking love. The reason this is comfort food for me is because they're kind of going on this journey. And I, an Iowa farmer, he hears a voice and he's inspired to you know, ignore farming like a normal farmer and builds a baseball field. It becomes this healing journey. He then is told by this inspiring ghostly voice to go find this person or go get that or, you know, do any number of things. And it's, it's just this really fun adventure. He, he comes across James Earl Jones and I quote it all the time rules. There's no rules here. And it's just such a fantastic interaction. I love, I just, I love all of it. Very cool. My fourth favorite comfort food movie is from 1983. It is a holiday film. I think the first on my list on HBO Max. It is a Christmas story. Yes, that is such comfort food. Oh, my God. So feel good. Now, it's a it's fascinating one because it's going to play differently for any audience of a certain age than it would for an audience of my age because you have a movie with inherent nostalgia that in itself has nostalgic feelings or mm. people have nostalgic feelings for from mm -hmm. my generation mm -hmm. because this movie is about someone looking at his childhood from like the 40s or 50s i can't remember which decade one of those two in in the holidays but also it's like from the early 80s and like there's just this 
nostalgia is all over this movie, essentially. Peter Billingsley plays this kid. All he wants is a Red Ryder BB gun <laughs> for Christmas. And he dreams and schemes on how he's going to get this thing under the tree. And, and you know, <laughs> maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. But uh, it just captures childhood of a certain generation. And if you were born of the baby booner generation, then you're not far removed mm-hmm. from this generation. And you, can, you kind of are able to connect with and relate to some of the childhood experiences even if you're one or two degrees separated from it if that makes any sense at all anyway i love 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 a christmas story i named it one of my favorite christmas movies of all time in a past episode so it is my fourth favorite comfort food movie and it's available on hbo max i I really love that one too and my host grandparents you know they're from iowa And they absolutely adore that film. Mm. My number three is a new one. It's very biased, recency bias, but I do not care because it makes me feel so good. It is Ghostbusters Afterlife. Oh, okay. Well, say no more. You already said everything about that one. So let's find out what your number three is. (laughs) Okay. These were neck and neck between number four and three. Another holiday one. 1989's National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. What? That's two Christmas movies? That's fun. Uh, available also on HBO Max. Woohoo! I think these two were named my first and second Christmas movies. And Elf is on HBO Max, so there's like a trio of oh yeah holiday movies on HBO Max. HBO Max has it going on, that's for sure. It I... had most of the franchises in our previous list. I mean, come on. Uh, I've talked a lot about this movie in, in previous episodes. It's the most hilarious National Lampoon's movie. In some ways, it's the best National Lampoon's movie. It has some of the best moments, some of the best quotes, the best cast. Uh, Chevy Chase is fantastic and hilarious in it. It just it has everything. I it has a great opening title sequence. Talked about that in a recent episode. It has great songs. It's got Johnny Galicki in it as hmm. Russ. Uh, Russ Griswold, mm-hmm. Juliette Lewis. Anyway, I adore this movie, and it's absolute comfort food for me. And I can, I I can watch it every Christmas basically. And so yeah, it's my third favorite comfort food movie. It's available on HBO Max. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, nineteen eighty nine. My number two is Uncle Buck from nineteen eighty nine. Aha! Oh my gosh, I just. I love this film so much, and like uh, like another one on this list, it gets better as I get older. You you catch on to more of the jokes, you understand more. It's just really great, and it's got John Candy. I mean, who doesn't who doesn't feel good when they see John Candy mm. on screen? So I think it's my favorite John Candy movie. He plays a bachelor who. Yeah, kind of doesn't know where he wants his life to go and he kind of doesn't want to commit to anything either so he seems a bit flaky but he's going through his own shit it turns out that his brother and sister-in-law need him to come and babysit the kids so that the, sis- the sister-in-law can go take care of her father because he's had a heart attack 
Right. I don't know if I right. mentioned that. But he has to look after the three kids. One is a teenager who they've just moved. Is there three or two? There's three. So there's the... Oh, yeah, that's right. The little girl. Yeah, Maisie. Played by Gabby Hoffman, who's also in Field of Dreams. Right. And Amy Madigan is in this one, too. She's the love interest for uh, yes. John Candy, Uncle Buck. Yes. So I, I just... I love this film so much. It's got Macaulay Culkin as well. Mm-hmm. And Uncle Buck comes and looks after these these kids. The two youngest ones, you know, they're no problem. One doesn't want to brush its teeth. But, you know, Uncle Buck figures out a way to make them do that. And the teenager is a teenager. She's angry. She's upset. And the thing is, Uncle Buck kind of gets it. But he's not going to take crap either. So I really love his boundary setting and how he expresses love for them. It's it's so wonderful. Uh, and he's there for her when she needs him. And I, I love this film. It's very quotable in my house. We always talk about, uh, my father always says, the go downtown and have a rat and all that thing off your face. Like uh, My second favorite Comfort food movie is available on Amazon Prime and Disney Plus. Interestingly enough, it's from 1993. It is Mrs. Doubtfire. That's a great pick. So that's my second Robin Williams pick on this list, I do mm-hmm. believe. And I think this is probably my favorite Robin Williams movie. Just, uh, I, I, you know, it's, it's hilarious. I, I love his performance, and yeah i don't know i just uh there's so much about it that i i love and i find it moving and touching and it's a movie that you grow with as you get older and all these sorts of things fun cast mara wilson's in it and being an adorable little mara wilson sally fields in it being very frustrated and frazzled from sally field pierce brosnan's in it <laughs> being the love interest of sally field who you know robert williams doesn't take too very well uh, Robin Williams, if you don't know, is a guy who's going through a divorce and he just wants to be with his kids and he kind of weasels his way into being in his kid's life every day by pretending to be a geriatric nanny from like England. <laughs> so he takes on an accent and everything to disguise his voice. Anyway. I adore this movie. It's Mrs. Doubtfire from 1993. I remember it was quite the comedy hit of 1993, too. That's also one that gets quoted the whole, hello. Yep, that's right. All right, Shanna. What is your favorite comfort food movie that if you just need, this is your first go-to? Do you want to guess? No, I don't want to get. You're so tired. I'm, this is after thing. midnight. I'm too tired. Right. I'm like tear off the bandaid. Okay, here we go. It's Who Framed Roger Rabbit from. Oh. Okay, if from I had 1988. If I had my mental capability, cap- you, you would have you would have figured it out because yeah. you would have seen. Okay, there's a Ghostbuster film. There's Uncle Buck. Oh, you're just missing Roger Rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> so it's from 1988. It is uh, available on Disney Plus and Prime. 
A toon-hating detective is a cartoon rabbit's only hope to prove his innocence when he is accused of murder. I mean, how bizarre is that? This cartoon is being accused of murder, and there's a human detective that helps cartoons. This is a merging of cartoon world with, you know, human world. So basically, it's animation and live action. It's this really interesting dynamic that's existing. There's references to studios. There's references to uh, the electric car being killed. Not the electric car, I'm sorry. The trolley industry being killed. Yes. And I learned more about that later in my life and I was like holy cow this is a great movie it gets better and better uh, there's a reference to Harvey there's just so much happening in this film there's so much comedy Roger Rabbit is so fun and so crazy I will take him over Bugs Bunny any day I just enjoy him so very much and this is also a film that gets heavily quoted in my household and and over here too very cool. So that is Who Framed Roger Rabbit, available only on Disney Plus. Is that right? As well as Prime. Oh, how about that? Mm. Well, my favorite film, that my favorite comfort food movie, is one that you cannot see in its proper form anymore. It's going to be Star Wars. It is available on Disney Plus. It is the only movie on my list, I think. That is not from the 80s or 90s. It is 1977 Star Wars, mm. which was completely qualified because it was only Return of the Jedi and maybe The Force Awakens, but definitely Return of the Jedi that was in my 12 favorite movies. I love how you found a way to get some Star Wars in there and I found a way to get some Ghostbusters in there. Uh, well, yeah, you're right. You know, how could it not be Star Wars? I mean, mm. you know, I, front, back, center. I've, I've seen this movie so many times. I have it memorized. It's, you know, the score, the just the, the, the way the score plays on the scenes in Tatooin when um, the droids are wandering around. I can hear R2-D2's whining, <laughs> his nervous whining in the, in the dunes and the Jawas and everything there's so much about this movie that is is comfort food for me absolutely 100 percent. i mean you know so yeah yeah it's star wars i mean it's my number one favorite franchise so there you go yeah so it's it's comfort food for me it's my favorite comfort food movie i i will I'll never watch it on disney plus i will always pop in my dvd that has the proper version so there's no quarreling about who shot first in my household <laughs> and all that sort of shit. So, yeah, that's it for me. Okay, so you said there's six movies that were on your favorites list of all time that you, you couldn't include. Obviously, Ghostbusters was one of them. Ghostbusters was one that technically I could include mm. along with Back to the Future, but mm -hmm. I didn't. Both mm -hmm. of those are absolute comfort food movies Absolutely, for me. Absolutely, yeah. And, and absolute favorites. Uh, what were the other five for you that you could not include on your list because of this limitation? Yeah, I could not include Ghostbusters, Harvey, Inside Out, Terminator 2. Terminator 2 is comfort food oh, for Oh, it you. is freaking comfort food for wow, me, for okay. sure. okay. All right. And arsenic and old lace. Okay. Yeah. Uh, for me, it, it was just Return of the Jedi, Indiana Jones, and The Last Crusade, my top two film favorite films of all time. 
and a league of their own mm. <sighs> sort of jaws and et but not not really jaws actually more kind of et you know i i couldn't include those uh were there any others that fell off your list or just barely didn't fit oh definitely Lady and the Tramp. Oh, yeah. Actually, I'm surprised that wasn't on your yeah. list. Anastasia, Bedknobs and oh. Broomsticks. It's oh. very hard for this not to be a Disney spiral. Yeah. Or a, you know, kid film spiral. Others included Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, Hook, huh. Fern Gully, huh. Spirited Away, Ladybird. Wow, really? Guardians wow. is yeah. pretty awesome. I could see that. Yeah. Fifth Element, Easy A, Bad Moms, Practical Magic. Wow, you had a lot you considered as comfort food. This I I did. Wow. I don't often have a huge list to consider, but no. those were definitely, you know, and I thought about Back to the Future, but I figured, well, that's probably going to make a, a different list a different time. Okay. Uh, yeah, it was just E.T., Oliver and Company, Disney's mm. Peter Pan, and another movie from 1987, big year for me, Mannequin. Oh, I didn't know that that qualified as comfort for you. Yes, another movie I grew up with and loved. We <laughs> talk more about Mannequin another time in more depth. But what are some of your comfort food movies? This is a this is a subject that is sure to bring a huge variety of answers because it's so subjective. I mean, it's one of the most subjective of subjects. I just realized I forgot about Jurassic Park. That is a huge comfort movie for me. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. Email us at the Gibson Review at gmail.com. All right, Shannon, before we talk about the next episode and wrap up here, let's talk about where people can find you online. You can find me on Instagram at Shanna Paxton Photography with underscores between those words. And you can find me on Flickchart with Spellbinding A. Excellent. Go to thegibsonreview.com for all the major stuff from the Gibson Review, including some of the past episodes of The Movie Lovers. Follow along on social media and Facebook at The Gibson Review or The Gibson 99 on Instagram. We are, in honor of episode 118, which is our favorite film scores episode, we are doing on Instagram bracket polls going decade by decade through film scores and trying to figure out what your favorites are. Since the last episode, we had the 1960s, which was your favorite was The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly score by Ennio Morricone. The 70s favorite ended up being The Godfather by Nino Rota. And now we're working through the 80s at the time of recording here. That might be wrapping up around the time you're hearing this episode. So definitely rush over to Instagram, the Gibson 99 to see which round you can participate in. If it's not too late, we'll be doing the 90s next. I'll give you updates on those in the next episode. Uh, speaking of the next episode, I think we're going to bench film faves for a couple episodes until the end of the year. And we are planning on doing a two or three review episode as we are trying to cram about 20 movies in the next six weeks. We're going to do about two or three major main event reviews. And we're looking at Encanto, 
House of Gucci, and possibly Licorice Pizza. Uh, reviews of each of those with spoilers, I believe we're planning on for each one. In the next episode of The Movie Lovers, you can look for that episode on Tuesday, December 7th. Until then, keep loving the movies. This is Jeff and Shanna saying... Bye-bye.